That's not what Jews heard when Jesus claimed that title for himself. It was loaded language and it harked back to an ancient prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where great words were spoken, evil ones destroyed, wicked dominion overturned and defeated. And the words are used, there appeared with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. And it goes on about how he would wipe away all tears and heal all brokenness. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, bringing the kingdom, it's actually electrifying for the people who hear it first. He isn't just saying, like we heard in the election just gone by, if you elect me, um, I'll fix the economy, yes, I'll create more jobs. No, nothing as, as small as that. Jesus says, I am God's revolution. If you receive me, I'll transform you. Your relationships will be fixed with God and then I'll transform your relationship with yourself and with others and with this whole world. My kingdom power will flow into your life and out into the world. And his hearers were amazed, gobsmacked. He told them and anyone from any background who would hear that he fulfills all those old cherished hopes and dreams, all the prophecies, they're all about Jesus. And Jesus tells this parable to galvanize us to the reality that God's kingdom is a feast, but not the kind of feast you'd think. It's a feast for the humble. The Lord's Supper is based on the kingdom feast, the messianic feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I hope we're all looking forward to with anticipation, with a prospect of great joy. Hope it's not that alarming. Um, but this that we've just done is a foretaste of that. The thing is, though, a lot of people dismiss Christianity. It's just pie in the sky when you die by and by. What the gospel is saying is, oh no, no, no. God's kingdom, you can have a slice of that pie right now. And what we've just done is a foretaste of that. So God's kingdom is a feast for the humble. And let's unpack that for a bit. You look there in verse 15 and Jesus responds to a man who says in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now this man knows, and he's looking forward to, as all good Jews would have, that on the last day, God's kingdom will be a feast to end all feasts. Smashing good times. On that day, our hunger and joylessness will be banished forever. Jesus tells a parable saying, I agree with you, mate. You're right. Yes, God's kingdom is a feast. So let's not miss the import of this. As I've suggested, I reminded you, I preached here a few weeks ago on Jesus' first miracle. What was it? Turning water into wine. 
ho-hum. We've heard it all before. Sunday school, they know about that one. But think about it. He went to a wedding party and made 600 litres of water into the best wine, even better than Grange Hermitage. And that's what he did. But much more, it's what he was proclaiming at that time. He proclaimed himself as Lord of the Feast, the one who turned a village's marriage supper that was about to turn out really badly and fail miserably into one that would be retold for centuries worldwide, as it has been, because of its epic abundance. It's recorded in John 2 as being his first sign. Now, Jesus and the apostles' miracles were called signs. Why? Why? What do signs do? They point to something. Well, it wasn't a power play. It wasn't naked power to amaze the masses, a bit like in that time they had the Roman circuses to entertain, to impress the masses and to captivate them. No, these were signs pointing to the authority that Jesus had and he gave to his apostles too, to who Jesus really was. Jesus did them to highlight that he is the Messiah, the saviour of the world, of all those ancient prophecies. He's the one that they pointed to. And he did them to reveal truth about himself. He's not your average ordinary day, ordinary everyday garden type Messiah, which the Jews had continually been fooled by. Over the centuries before, they'd continually risen messianic figures who were just fake. So he's setting himself apart with them. So, Jesus, you then have to ask, why would you do something frivolous with your first sign, like just make it a party? Why? Why not do something really important like heal a leper or even raise someone from the dead? Now, that's really doing good. Just having a party, that's so 21st century, isn't it? But here he is. If you think that it's just so weird that Jesus would be a party booster, I'm suggesting you probably don't understand what he's really on about. Do you think that being a Christian means, don't smile too much, make cakes for the fakes, uh, go to boring business meetings, um, obey a list of thou shalt nots, Help at the soup kitchen, just be a good person. Stay in line. It's not a fun life, but that's the price you have to pay to get to heaven. You see, that's the caricature of Christianity, which I think many people have. I couldn't go to church because it's only for goody-two-shoes type people. That's the way it's seen. And if that's the picture of Christianity that's embedded in your thinking, I'd say this parable should help you to think again. Contrast how Jesus says, the kingdom of God is a banquet. I am the Lord of the feast bringing festival joy. Where my face turns, the trees laugh, sing for joy. It's like a creation thing all over again. Where my feet go, the desert blooms. Where I raise my scepter, 
there's inevitably, inescapably joy. And if you can't accept that, then you need to rethink your understanding of what Jesus is on about. And the reason he tells the parable is to help his hearers understand that this feast isn't what they think of when they plan a feast. His is radical. When you plan a celebration, you invite the best people, the ones who are going to make it a lively time, uh, who won't make a scene and wreck the fun. You know, there will be certain people who you might wonder, should I really invite uncle so-and-so because, you know, he tends to have a few too many and can get a bit messy. You think like that, don't you? You invite those who are the most together, confident, attractive, the ones who other people would want to rub shoulders with and, you know, do the selfie with. And then it'll be a successful party, more Snapchat, more Instagram, retweets that you'll be remembered for. But God's kingdom feast isn't like that. To enter it takes humbling. To eat it takes humbling. To have its power course through you takes humbling. And he shows that it's only the humbled who experience his kingdom power, who enter his kingdom, who receive its benefits. And there are at least four ways for you to humble yourself or you won't enter the kingdom. We'll look at them in turn. And if you don't continually humble yourself like this, then you won't experience the kingdom power that Jesus is talking about. So be humbled under the slowness, the freeness, the commonness and the firstness or the priority of God's kingdom. So be humbled under the slowness of God's kingdom. What does that mean? Well, have a look at verse 16. It describes the feast preparation. He gave a great banquet and he invited many. You get the invitation, but the banquet's still being prepared. It won't be ready for a while. God's kingdom is like a feast that's in preparation. You can smell it if you go to the kitchen. You can taste a bit even. Wow, this will be good. But you know the fullness is coming. It's not here yet. And God's kingdom is something like that. Not yet in its fullness. Now, but not yet. Won't completely, there won't be the complete healing and restoration until the last day, the judgment day, and that's coming. To enter a kingdom like that, it actually takes humility. You're humbled under the slowness of it. God doesn't operate according to our impatient agenda. I often pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Especially when I've had a bad day at work. Um, I just, yeah, come. Well, that's my impatience, that's my problem. Think about it a bit like a child's birthday party. Of course, this never happened in our family. It's fictional, and I use names only with permission uh, to be humiliated for the sake of the story. And one of my sons even decided not to turn up today, so he knew what to avoid. Sorry, Aunt James, you cop it full on. <laughs> we're, we're cheap, and we had both sons' birthday parties on the same day because they're both born in the same month. Needless to say, three weeks apart, but no, no, 
both in the same month, both have the birthday on the same day. And you can imagine, you get woken, 6.15am on a Saturday, Mum, Dad, it's our birthday today. Come on, get up. It's on. Big day. Family gathering, lots of fun. Huh? Whew, yeah, Andrew, yeah, James, rightio. But we need to do a bit before the party. How about you have breakfast? Get the day started. Then at 8 a.m., Mum, Dad, what's going on? How come it isn't ready yet? Look, boys, we still have a few things to do. I have to clean up the out outdoor setting for, for people and I've got to clean the backyard of dog poo. And, and look, Mum's got to finish the cake and go out and get a few last-minute things from the shop. What? And realise, look, we'll have lunch and James, you really have to have a nap so that you can last the distance later because the guests aren't coming till three o'clock. What? If this is the way life is, I don't want to live. I've had enough. What happens? What's happening here? Well, a child wants it and wants it all now. I just want to know why the party hasn't started. And you think in some ways, fair enough. Parents say, well, look, it isn't ready. We're working on it. I'm an adult. You're a child. You don't understand. Be patient. But children have their feelings. And they know what they want and how they feel. And in the same way, Christians, you may know rationally that Jesus is Lord and you may already enjoy the blessings. You should already be enjoying the blessings, the way he's come into your life, transformed your life. He's, his power is there in ways you'd never experienced before Christ, BC. But you haven't got the fullness of it yet and it's still to come. And you still see so much pain, people dying, troubles in the world, loneliness in your own heart, tears everywhere and you wonder, why? What's going on? Why not now? It's a bit like when John the Baptist was imprisoned and sent messages to Jesus, asking, Jesus, if you're the king and I'm your servant, why am I in a dungeon? Are you really the one, the kingdom-bringing Messiah? Why haven't you overcome the Romans? Why haven't you got rid of Herod, put evil down? Why not? Well, God says, child, you don't see the big picture. Humble yourself under my ways. You must. I have a plan from before the foundation of the world and it's being worked out surely. And this is just one part of it. The takeaway from all of this is that we shouldn't be like a myopic child who only knows your own feelings and desires and that lack of perspective feeds into a second reality which this parable pictures for us. Be humbled, not just under the slowness of God's kingdom, but also be humbled under the freeness of God's kingdom. He says, come, everything is prepared. It's not a restaurant, nor is it a bring a plate to share meal. In his time, it's prepared already. You can't merit it. You have nothing that's worth it. And it's far better than anything you can pay for or even imagine. It's completely prepared for you and has to be received humbly.
it can't be earned by your moral efforts. Oh, am I doing well enough to get there? I wonder, have I got a pass mark? No, no, you can't think like that. People who think that they're too bad for Jesus, feel they're too guilty to be accepted, too sinful or too unworthy or too much of a failure to have God love them, are also proud like those people who are trying to earn a pass mark. But it's inverted pride. People who feel pride spend a lot of time talking about how wonderful they are and uh, how deserving and how everyone should let them go first and realise, well, I'm special. People who feel inverted pride, they monopolise the conversation in a very different way. With self-condemnation, talk about how unworthy they are and, and so on and so forth. They're worms. And you might have heard of some people talk about worm theology as if that's biblical. And it isn't. But both attitudes are actually all about me, me, me with little consideration for how that focus on self ignores others and in particular makes God's grace to be so weak that he can't work by his Son and Spirit to transform us. Yet his transforming power is there and it's free. Imagine a friend of yours invites you to the best restaurant in the world. Heard about it on the radio this week, 11 Madison Park. It won the award this last week. And she says, well, I'll foot the bill for the $500 a head degustation menu because I want you to experience this just amazing, wonderful meal. And you even get a, a message from the maître de, de, de hotel. Our tasting menu lasts three and a half hours, so please plan your day accordingly. Something a bit different. It's not just going down to Macca's. You reply, oh, great. Let me just go home and fix a couple of uh, frozen pizzas in the microwave to, to come along and, and help out. Sounds like it'll be a great time. Well, your host at that point should respond something like this. It's clear you have no idea how superior this restaurant is and I don't even want to take you. I'll find someone else. Thank you very much. You know, when you hold this sort of way of thinking, it's pride. You don't want God's charity. You want somehow to contribute to make yourself worthy of getting something from God. Then you can say, even if you don't say it out loud, you think, I deserve it. Of course I'll be in glory. I'm better than, and you, you list off who or what you're better than. And you've got a problem when you think like that. You don't want it to be free. You want to earn it and be worthy. God's kingdom is therefore shut out to you. Holding on to your guilt, this inverted pride, also insults the Lord of the feast. So I'm suggesting you substitute anything you can put in there anything in the blank, but any time you feel far from God, it'll be because of your pride. Even if you feel God doesn't love you, it's because you think about it, you're demanding that he do exactly what you think is loving for you at this instant. 
and you won't feel love unless God is just like a cosmic vending machine. Put in your money, push the buttons, and he gives you exactly what you want. Huh? As if you can put the God of the universe over a barrel like that. You completely misjudge the nature and the freeness of his kingdom. He just says, humble yourself and come because it's free. Everything's prepared. And there's a third element too of humbling as we seek first God's kingdom. Be humbled under the commonness of God's kingdom. The first people getting the invitations here are like the man hosting the banquet. They're the right crowd. His peers, good people. That's the ones you'd invite. And he's likely to be invited to a banquet back at their place in a future time. But then he gets one rejection after another. And so he sends servants out to the poor, crippled, blind and lame. And finally, when there's still space, the servants are sent to the highways and the hedges to compel people to come in. But the house may be filled. By this detail, Jesus is putting his finger on a sore spot for the Jews. And he is telling the Jews that while they might reject him, his amazing news, the gospel, would go out to those far afield whom the Jewish leaders dismissed as beneath them and certainly not the right ones to spend time with, to rub shoulders with. So God's amazing news is for everyone. But the social elite of Jesus' day, well, they were prejudiced against him and his gospel because their value system excluded people. Jesus included. And the thing is, we can be like those Jewish elite and exclude people. We should take care because, you see, the educated and powerful people of every society throughout history find Christianity demeaning compared with other religions. They're more likely to want to bring something to the table. They're more likely to see Jesus' way as somehow beneath them because it's just too humbling. They are less likely to find it acceptable to get down and dirty amongst the poorest of the poor and rub shoulders with those who have real problems, problems which only Jesus can solve. It isn't just something that the government can solve, just put a bit more money into it another social program. No, no. Jesus says, by nature, we're dead in sin. We can do nothing to save ourselves. What can a dead man do? What can a dead person do? Stink a bit more, rot a bit more. Spiritually, we're dead. We deserve no good thing. Our only hope is to rely on a saviour who would die a cursed death in your place, rise to new life, pour out his spirit in fullness. And that is free, it's common as muck, it's for everyone. God's kingdom power goes out to people in the alleys and the byways, the homeless and the destitute. And so it's a challenge to us to be creative, uh, endure. It's hard ministering in that sort of way. Involve yourselves in the lives of all. Thousands the early New Testament church had to go out past their own type, even to the unclean Gentiles. And so we can praise God. Here we are, I think probably pretty much all Gentiles at the ends of the earth because they got 
the message. The early New Testament church got it. Do we get it? And let's thank God for the ordinariness, the commonness of his kingdom. And then finally, we need to be humbled under the firstness or the priority of his kingdom. Check the parable and you see that initial invitations didn't go out to those who we might label unbelievers, the scum of the earth. No, no. The host sent invitations to the in crowd, to people like him. And they say initially, yep, we'll be there. But all sounds very nice, doesn't it? Nice. From that response, he knew he had to prepare so many calves and sheep, pomegranates, olives, figs, and so on. Then several days later, when the servants had finally prepared the meal, they went to those who said, first time, we'll come. But this time, when the final invitation, come, everything is now ready, is received, what do they respond? No, not going to come. The point seems to be that many people start out believing, but in the end, they're not sure. They'll make excuses why it doesn't suit them. They think they'll come to the kingdom party. We may say even in the sort of language we use today, oh, they believe the basics. Radio, they may believe that, but they don't come. And that's the crunch. Why? Well, now when it comes to the crunch and a clear-cut decision needs to be made, they don't want their lives to be disturbed. Hey, I've got this and I've got that and I've got t'other. And you look at their excuses, see how lame they are. Surely you scope out a property or you study a trucking company before you buy them. That would be the equivalent of a field or five yoke of oxen. And surely you take your wife to enjoy a banquet together. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm married, therefore we're not going. What? That doesn't make sense at all. So here are people who thought, oh, I can be a part of God's kingdom on my terms. You see, God, yep, I want you as God, but I've got my priorities. Thanks. Just butt out of this one for a little while. Oh, I'll talk to you a bit later, but I've got this to do now. Huh? Jesus says, I'm the king and I'm moving out right now. If you're not for me, you're against me. End of story. I come first or I'm nothing to you. If my values make it hard for you to make as much money, limit your field of prospective marriage partners, if my law means that uh, there are certain things that you've been used to doing and now they're going to be off limits and so you're not prepared for that, then you refuse to come. When it's clear, you are still your own boss, running your own life your own way. And I'm not really your Lord. And if I'm not your Lord, Jesus is saying, I'm not your saviour either because I've come as Lord and saviour and the two are inescapably attached. And you know what? If I'm nothing to you now, I'll be your judge later. My kingdom comes first. That's what he's saying. So I challenge you, have you humbled yourself under the lowness of the kingdom? Why are you acting like a child, having a fancy that God isn't fitting in with your schedule and your desires? Have you humbled yourself under the freeness of the kingdom? Do you see that it's sheer grace, of which, as we've sung about this morning, amazing grace, 
that saves you and you can't bring a thing of merit, nothing in my hand I bring. Have you humbled yourself under the commonness of the kingdom? You're just as needy as those in the gutter, the prostitutes, tax collectors, the Gentiles of Jesus' day. No matter how far gone you are, your goneness is no match for Jesus in all his saving, transforming power and glory. And humble yourself to make Jesus and his kingdom your life's first priority because under Jesus, you'll be able to enjoy the banquet that he's prepared. Shall we pray? And then we'll sing. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that in so many ways our values, the values uh, that we easily pick up from the world around us, aren't yours. And so we pray that you would continue to convict us, to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to clear our ears so that we would see and hear you and cling to you and find life and more abundantly because of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.